Welcome to What Have We Learned. I'm Ben Punter. Um, if you want to get in touch, if you want to say hello, if you want to let us know what you think of the episode, do get in touch. I'm on Twitter at Ben Punter. Uh, on Facebook, we are What Have We Learned. There are video versions, if you like, on YouTube, youtube.com slash Ben Punter, or simply search What Have We Learned, and you, you'll look out for the big yellowy logo. Um, and also, we're on Instagram now at What Have We Learned Pod, all one word. And depending where you're listening to this, you can also listen on a different platform if that is more comfortable for you. We are on Apple, Acast, and Spotify as well. This episode is the very funny stand-up comedian Lauren Patterson, and we talk about online comedy, the joys of Edinburgh, venues and nominations, starting out in comedy, and the Calm podcast. Just a heads up, there may be a few sound quirks because of the way this episode was recorded, but it should be okay all in the end. Uh, This is What Have We Learned with Lauren Patterson. Lauren, welcome to What Have We Learned. Hello, hiya. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Um, so you've been doing quite a few gigs at the moment as well. Yeah, so at first I was dead against the online gigs, but I think that's because, like, obviously when all the gigs disappeared, nobody had really, like, set up these online gigs yet. So when people were talking about online gigs, it was very much, like, very well-meaning strangers on the internet being like, oh, well, why don't you just, you know sit in front of your webcam and, and do an hour of comedy and maybe people will watch and I was like I cannot think of anything worse than that and especially I was like living at my with yeah. parents at the time I was like I don't want to be stood in my kitchen feeling pretty depressed because I've just lost all my work doing stand-up to nobody in front of my webcam not knowing if anyone's watching not knowing if anyone's enjoying it and then being heckled by my mum making toast like that's not what I want <laughs> so I was really at first I was like no and I think a lot of people felt the same like no no these online gigs or doing comedy online isn't going to be for me. But then the beauty of the comedy circuit is um, sort of lots of like promoters and clubs started coming together to kind of put their comedy club online and structure it like a proper online gig. And I was like, mm, well, that doesn't seem so bad because what was putting me off was thinking it was just going to be me on my own. Like, I don't have a huge... Like, I, I, I'm lucky to have some followers, but I didn't know if I could trust that I would have enough that they would come and bloody watch um, me just doing stand-up in my webcam. So I was really sketchy, <clears throat> and then there was really nice, I think the first one I did was for Good Ship Comedy, um, which is like a London gig, and I've done that gig before, and I know the promoter, so I was like, go on then, I'll start with that one. Dulwich Hamlet, the, the gig there, they did one, so I did those two like dead close together, and I remember like at the time, I was like, you know what, it's not a real gig, it's not got that same vibe, but just to be doing sort of something that kind of more resembles an actual gig than me on my own hoping people watch um and I was like oh they're not so bad so I did I started to say say yes to a few more and then even now like I'm a little bit more fussy now now that we're like 10 years into this pandemic or whatever I'm less likely to say yes to everything but still like people have got the hang of running them a bit more now people know what makes them work knows what doesn't so like a lot of them aren't as soul destroying as you might initially think (laughs) and there is I'm guessing that with a an actual comedy venue you it encourages people to sort of people get kind of roped into coming along. Oh no, come see some comedy, come see some comedy, and they they end up being the worst audience member. Oh, yeah. Whereas an online gig, it, an online gig will kind of filter some of those people out. They go, oh no, I won't bother. But the people who are keen to see comedy are going exactly, and it's been a really good way as well for me to like get in front of people who might not have seen this before. Because I've done like I've grafted the comedy circuit, I've done the comedy circuit, but you know, say if there's a club in. 
like Leeds, I don't know, Leeds, I've picked the worst place because Leeds does not have a great comedy scene as much as a wonderful city as it is. But say if there's only one club in Leeds, I might do that club, say, maybe once a year. So the probability of a comedy fan in Leeds having seen me might be quite, like, small. But then suddenly there's these online gigs and you don't have to be based where that gig is to watch it. So I'm getting people from, like, all over the country whose cities I've definitely gigged in before, but for whatever reason... They haven't been at that gig and haven't seen us because I don't have a big like TV follower. Well, I don't have a big TV presence. So these people are like, oh, wow, I've never seen you before. And it has been a good way of getting people to see you from places around the country where, yes, you mm. might have performed there before, but they've not seen you. So it's been quite good. Yeah. Do you think online comedy is it's just a temporary fix? It's not going to be the new solution? Yeah, like I've, I've been describing it as like corn. So I'm like, it's not the real thing, but it's a substitute for now. Like, that's... Yeah. You can... We've been doing these gigs for, what, nearly a year now. So I think there's some people who are like, yeah, yeah, you know, it, it keeps me fresh. It makes me feel like a comedian. But the second those real gigs come back, everyone's going to drop the online stuff. Like, definitely. I think maybe what would be good is if... See, like, you know, your, your regular comedy clubs, like the Comedy Store, Hot Water or The Stand, if they did maybe record the show and offer it for like two nights on a live stream link for people who can't get out of the house and I think this Mm. has put a lot of focus on you know those people who are um not as able-bodied who can't come to comedy clubs which are often upstairs downstairs that sort of thing and it would be nice if we could make comedy a bit more inclusive and allow those things to be watched from home but I think definitely (coughs) live comedy itself will be the dominant (laughs) dominant factor because even with Edinburgh with Edinburgh Fringe, there's thousands of acts to see. And even if you go for the whole month, you can't really see every single show. But the idea that you could see a big chunk of shows and then maybe a small number of shows online at a later date to see what you missed. Oh, definitely. Because especially like in something like Edinburgh, if you think of that, say, six o'clock to nine o'clock time slot, there is so much to see. That's like the peak time slot. Everybody clashes. I know that going up as a performer and a comedy fan, I like to see shows. And there'll be that sort of seven o'clock time slot where you think, I want to see about 50 people and I'm not going to fit all that in in a month. So I would definitely like... And as well, maybe if it was a bit cheaper, so say like the ticket price for the actual show was £10, but you can pay £6 to watch it online. Like you might get more people mm. taking a chance on, oh, well, I kind of want to see that show, but I don't want to pay 10, 12 quid for it, but I'd happily pay 6 like that sort of thing. Yeah, and it, it, it would encourage people to, 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 to embrace the, the actual atmosphere and the vibe, like you're paying for that vibe. Oh, definitely, definitely. And then with uh, Edinburgh Fringe, I saw your show uh, Peachy. Oh yeah. At uh, Pleasance uh, Attic. Sweaty little room. Um, and I, I yeah, I I might have been. I don't know where it was. It was a re- reoccurring thing, but I was at the show where someone fainted. Oh yes, I remember that because I thought she mm. was walking out, and I was like, if you'd like, if you're not enjoying it, whatever. And she was like, no, no, I'm literally going to faint. And I was like, oh okay. <laughs> and then I think, didn't I offer them like? tickets to another show I was like if you want to if you don't feel like you can come back in like a a gig all over let me know and I'll sort something out and they were from like the Netherlands or something and I was like I can't sort that Mm. out sorry (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. I I remember leaving it and well as in like when it all finished she just sat on the floor outside and was like and everyone walking by you okay are you okay you okay yeah I'm fine I'm fine now I'm good I think that's part of the thing as well with things like Edinburgh. Like, I personally love the sort of being cramped in, hot, sweaty rooms. I love it. But I know there's some people who that's not their thing. They don't want to be, like, 
elbow to elbow with somebody feeling hot and uncomfortable. I've nearly fainted. I nearly fainted in Harriet Kemsley's Edinburgh show a good few years ago um, when it was in one of the Just the Tonic venues. And I was so squashed in. I had my dad next to us and a big, like, six-foot, well-built bloke on the other side. And I was so pinned in, I physically couldn't uncross my arms. I'd sort of sat down mm. with my arms slightly crossed and they'd sat either side of us. And I thought, I can't even uncross my arms. I'm that pinned in. And I remember, like, briefly feeling yeah. for a second in that show. So I know it's not everybody's vibe, definitely. It, you, you kind of need to be a bit of a trooper for shows as well. I mean, yeah. I've I've contracted the fringe flu when you're, you're going from little room to little room. And then I've had that thing where you, you just got, you've just got a really bad hacking cough. And all you can do is drink water and drink water and drink water for an hour. And then after a while, you think... I need to go, A, I need to go to the toilet, and also I need to really do a big, big old cough. And I'm in a small room. I'm like, I can't see the show. I have to, I have to skip shows. I've had that with um, Colin Cloud's show. I love Colin. The girl from Soho Theatre, who was like sort of my main point of contact, I was raving about Colin Cloud, the illusionist to her. So we decided to go see a show together. And like we had sort of like one drink before the show, just in like the courtyard. Um, and then we said, right, we'll do wheeze before we go in. So went, had a, because I normally try and avoid drinking anything let alone alcohol before shows because I've got the bladder of like a toddler but I went and did mm. like a wee before the show and I was like right perfect and honestly got about 40 minutes into his show and I thought I need a wee I really need a wee <laughs> and it's obviously I hadn't drunk a lot I had one drink of alcohol but I thought well I've been on the go all day and I've been here and there and I like of course you, you need to wee and I remember sitting there and I thought I can't I can't be that dickhead who leaves, especially in the, it was in the Grand, so you have to walk down them steps, like, plonk, 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 plonk. And I was like, mm. oh, God, I'm so embarrassed. And I remember, because I know Colin as well, I thought, what if he sees and thinks, for God's sake, she's a performer. She's a performer, and she couldn't mm. even hold her wee for an hour. I was mortified. Um, so I went, had a wee, like, snuck back in, and I sent him the most apologetic text after, and he was like, I didn't even notice. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favourite venue at the Fringe? Monkey Barrel 1. As a performer and as a punter, I think it's just mm. the perfect... It's because it's like a purpose-built comedy space. And like obviously I love the Pleasance. Like I wouldn't have had two of the shows I had without the Pleasance. But like those venues are very much... You know you're not in a comedy space. You feel like you're in... Some of them a bit more... You feel a bit more like it's a comedy space. But a lot of them you're aware mm. that this is a space that's been turned into somewhere for you to watch comedy. Whereas Monkey Barrel's just got that... This is a comedy club. Like it's, the, I love even the chairs. Like the chairs, how they're like those old, old. There's the ones at the back are like the old theatre style chairs, like the flip down ones. Like you get in like a cinema or something. Yeah. I love that. Just a really, really nice space. Is Monkey Barrel the one where it's it's got the stairs going down as well? So yeah, and there's sort of like a bigger room upstairs, but then you can go down. Mm. It's like opposite the Tron, not opposite there. When the year I did Peachy, I was like, I'm having a year off the following year. I'm not doing Edinburgh. And then Monkey Barrel got in touch and we're like, we know you're not doing Edinburgh, but we've got some gaps. Do you want to do like a one-off or something or a work in progress? I was like, I'll come and do Peachy one more time because, uh, not to brag, it sold out the year before. So I was like, well, maybe there's still some people who didn't get to see it who'd like to see it. And I remember doing it in that space. And I was like, this is the kind of space that I was like, that I'm meant to perform in because I cut my teeth on the live circuit, on the comedy circuit. Like, not slagging off acts who've done it other ways, but, you know, there's some acts who've maybe just done the London circuit and done, like, kind of pubs and clubs that way, whereas I kind of did the comedy clubs around the country, so that's the spaces I feel most comfortable in, those, like, purpose-built, mm. like, lovely comedy rooms. And I remember coming out and just thinking, oh, this, like, I think sometimes as a act there's a space you, like, 
gravitate to a bit more and some people like imagine themselves playing arenas or imagine themselves playing like theatres but for me it's those like lovely little proper comedy rooms that are I feel like most at home yeah yeah for for me the monkey barrel there are so once you see a show that blows you away that's the venue you associate certain shows with so for me monkey barrel is where I saw things like Elvis Dead or uh Oh, what are they called? Uh, delightful Sausage. Debuting, I went to the Pleasance because I associated the Pleasance with shit-hot debuts. Like, that's... Mm-hmm. And I know a few people were like, why are you going to the Pleasance? And the Pleasance isn't for acts like us. And I was like, well, with that attitude, no, it's not. And the more you mm. perpetuate that rhetoric of this venue isn't for us, you're then the same people who look at that lineup and go, why is there no working-class voices in there? Why is, there no, why is there no Northern voices? And I'm like, because you are telling people every year... I'm not speaking about one comic in particular here. I mean, it's a general mm. attitude in comedy of like, oh, the Pleasance isn't for us. And I'm like, but the more you tell people that the less you're going to get those voices in there. So I was like, so determined to go there. When it's a good venue, it's good for debuts, why wouldn't I want to debut my show there? Um, And then even still after the year after, people were like, I can't believe you're going back. And I was like, but you cannot complain that you think that space doesn't have enough voices like ours and then complain when voices like ours go play it. Like, (laughs) something has to, something has to give, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were nominated for Best Newcomer for 2017 for Lady Mark. What does a nomination, a newcomer nomination, mean to a performer? Mm, so when I went up there, I think it would be a lie to say I hadn't thought about it because, of course, there's so much like focus put on your debut that even if you go up there thinking, I don't care about the nomination, you are still in some way thinking about the nomination, whether it be, oh, I wonder who will get nominated or it is on your mind. But I went up there and I was like, I remember being at a party on the first night, like a house party. I think the festival hadn't even started yet. We'd maybe just done like the, the day where you have all your tech runs and stuff. And I remember being quite drunk and I'm not normally one to like blow my own drum. It'll big myself up. And I said to me, mate, I personally think this show is good enough to be nominated for newcomer, but I don't think it will be. Uh, and again, cause I think I had that sort of like mindset in my head where I was like, oh, but I'm a like a working class circuit comedian. I've come up through the circuit and you know, I, I, I don't know if that's the kind of show that will get, like, rewarded with a nomination because I'm, I'm not, like, a fancy person who would be praised in the broadsheets. That's not me. That's not my kind of act. Like, I'd only ever been reviewed in new act competitions and stuff, and I was like, I just don't think I'm the kind of act who would get that. But I like to think that I've written a show that really is is technically strong enough, um, and I spent the rest of the month not thinking about it. Anytime I didn't really socialise that month, Anytime someone would try and bring it up. I'd be like, I don't want to think about it because you see it happen to act who are debuting where they get so fixated on the newcomer award that that's all they think about and all they care about. And if they don't get the nomination, they say that as a failure. And I'm like, but it's only Mm. what, six or eight people get nominated for it. And there's usually about 50, 60 shows debuting. So more people don't get nominated than do. And I think it's so dangerous for people to put so much importance on it. So every time people would try and bring it up, I'd be like, don't, because I am having a lovely month I'm having a lovely time. I'm taking each day as it comes and I'm enjoying every sort of success that I'm getting. I don't then want to start fixating on this newcomer thing because it'll skew everything. And then I remember going for breakfast um, with my agent the day that the nominations results were coming out. But obviously I hadn't even really sort of, looking back now, she obviously took me for breakfast on that day for a reason to sort of distract us or whatever. And I remember her phone went when we were having breakfast and she'd said... um, oh, like, are you thinking about it? Or you, don't let it bother you. And I was like, nah, nah, like, I've had this amazing time. The show's sold out. I've got amazing reviews. Like, 
I'm not really that bothered. And then her phone rang and off she went. And I didn't even click. And then she came back and she was like, you've got it. You've got the nomination. And I was like, I lied. I do care. I care so much. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's the thing. I hadn't cared until the moment I got told I had the nomination. And I was like, oh, yeah, I do care. Like, of course. Like, I think looking back now, if I hadn't have got it, I do think I would have been disappointed because I've seen it happen before where shows have, like, amazing reviews and amazing runs and don't get sort of acknowledged with and you say it even not just with like everybody at the minute is um criticizing the golden globes because michaela cole i may destroy you didn't get nominated and that's the thing like if you see something or a part of something that you know is worth it you can't help but feel a little bit like well come on where's the recognition for that so i think i was deep down in the end very pleased i got it having that when you having that mindset of if you go there on on the expectation that you're going to win it's going to completely distract you from maybe the quality of the show itself but there also there will be there will be millions of people who they're not going to edinburgh to make a show the fact that someone's gone up there to make a show is the big deal in itself exactly yeah and um absolutely even like the year after me people were saying to me like the actor were debuting how do we have your year and i was like you can't think like that because my Mm. year was my year like i wrote my show and like you can't try and sort of it you need to have your year you can't like i understand people being like oh we'd like to get the things you got of course but people seem to be saying to us like give me an exact template on how we can do everything you did and i'm like but you can't because it's like a jigsaw and i think the room i was in helped like that show just seemed to really match that room and everything seemed to like work and I don't know. I think it's it's a shame when people seem to think like, oh, there must be one route for me to do it and that's the way I'm going to do it kind of thing. I'm like, no, you just have to follow your own path and make your own path rather than be like, oh, well, maybe I'll just see if what, like copy what this person did and see if it works for me. It won't because we're all different acts with different shows and different styles of comedy. And it also depends on the general sort of zeitgeist of that year. And if, if people, you know, depending, depending on what people want to see, if they want to see one-liners, if they want to see surreal, if they want to see, exactly, yeah. you know, storytelling, it can differ from year to year. So you could, even if you took the, year, the, the show and did it five years earlier, it might not have worked because that's not what people are after Absolutely. that Absolutely. And I think, like, I was quite, the year I debuted, there wasn't many sort of, like, young female I don't mean straight as in sexuality, but you know what I mean, like straight stand-up. There wasn't many of us debuting, but then the following year you had Maisie Adam, Olga Koch, Sarah Keyworth, Catherine Bohart, Rosie Jones, Sindhu V. And you can't help but think, well, if I debuted that year, would I have still got nominated or would it have been like a bit more of a competitive field? I'm not saying I got nominated just because I'm a woman, but I think it was a little bit easier for me to stand out that year so being nominated does that add any, add any pressure to following years or, or following yeah, shows yeah well as well I was quite again this is going to sound like such a little humble brag but my show had already sold out the run and a lot of people said to me that's a good thing because if your show hasn't sold out the day you get that newcomer nomination you get your show will sell out your show will sell out for the rest of the run and it's people going oh this person's been nominated I care about this person now when you've been there all fucking month and they've not batted an eyelid at you um, so people said often your nomination day show can be your worst show because you get mm. people suddenly booking tickets purely because you've been nominated, whether they've looked to see if you know they like the sound of the show, whether you're their kind of comedian, that sort of thing. So a lot of people had said to us, you've hit lucky because that could possibly have been the worst bloody show of the run where you get suddenly all these quite like stuffy people who are like, oh, so you're award nominated, are you? Entertain me. So I was quite pleased. I still had, that was the show someone walked out on, had one walk out that yeah. year. 
Um, and that was the show, ironically. And I was like, oh no, why have you picked today? So I still had a weird show, but it was fine. But then I felt coming back the following year, I did feel like people did sort of like put a bit of pressure on us, which was weird because I was like, but why? Like, why all this unnecessary extra pressure? Like, as well, like, without being like snidey, it's like, oh, so why are the people who didn't get nominated, why are they not under this much pressure? Like, surely it should be a case of every year, every year your show should get better as you become a stronger comic. So that pressure should really be on everyone, not just like, oh, well, you got nominated, so step it up. It's like, well, well no, Shelley, everyone should be stepping it up. And I remember, like, um, I, I have this conversation with people a lot. I preferred my second show. I much preferred my second show. Um, but a lot of people... Well, like, oh, no, well, I loved Lady Muck because of this. But then I get people being like, oh, my God, no, I didn't think it could get better than Lady Muck. And then I love Peachy. So I do find it interesting speaking to people who've seen both. Because obviously one was the classic Edinburgh show with, like, the emotional bit. And then the other one... But they were both kind of narrative shows. But I think the first one was a little bit more narrative heavy. And then the second one was, like, a solid hour of stand-up. But what I found with the reviews is I felt like I was slightly more harshly reviewed the following year. Um... And that could just be me, like, sort of speaking bullshit. I got a lot of lovely reviews, but there was a couple of reviews. I think, should I name them? No, I won't name them. But there was one review where I read the review, and I I never thought I'd be this comic because it sounds like such a, like, "Mm, whatever thing to say. But I remember reading the review and being like, that's a four-star review. That's a lovely review. And then I looked at the star rating, and it was three and a half stars, and I thought, I don't want to be that comic. It's like, well, it read like a four. Because I always scoff at those mm. comics. But I was like, this genuinely reads like a four. There's, I think there was no criticism in it. Like, or maybe like one line of criticism. But the review was three and a half stars. Now, previously, the year before, that publication had given me four stars. And I couldn't help but think, I feel like you've slightly marked as a bit harsher because of last year, if you know what I mean. Like, that review is such yeah. a good review. I don't get how that can't be a four star and it feels like maybe you've been slightly a little bit like you've almost compared that show to last year's which you shouldn't you are reviewing the show that is in front of you if you think that's a four star show you give it four stars you don't think oh well actually you know because last year's was so shit hot and maybe i will slightly mark this one under i'm like no you review what you're watching you review what's in front of you and don't get us wrong i got i got i think i got largely good reviews for peach i didn't get anything less than like a three star i think i got a couple of three stars and predominantly like fours and fives obviously i'm not fucking complaining but there was definitely like one or two publications where i thought this does feel like you've been a little bit more like almost like you've gone in there looking for things to criticize because of the strength of last year's but on the whole let's say i was very happy with the reviews i got still plenty to put on a bloody poster so i can't whinge but you do and then but maybe it's not maybe it's not the reviewers maybe it's you in your own head being like i know everybody's comparing it to last year so maybe you're just sort of like actively looking for things but i don't know i've got a rule with reviews which i think is a very good rule because the year i did lady muck like i said i'd not really been reviewed before i'd been reviewed in competition finals um to to mixed results (laughs) but i'd never had like just my stuff over that long period of time like reviewed and I remember putting on Facebook, mm. I was like, should you read reviews? Should you not read reviews? Because I'm quite an anxious person and I know a bad review will get in my head. But then also, Shirley, it's good to know what people are thinking about your show. And I got mixed 
feedback because obviously like I said before everybody's different some people like to read them some people don't some people think you should like it's important you have to how can you improve as a comic other people are like fuck it their opinion doesn't matter but what I decided in the end was um I wasn't going to read the reviews but I asked I think I was just dating my ex-boyfriend at the time we just started dating so I would send the reviews to him and I'd say send me one nice line tell me the star well I, you know the star rating anyway because the stars are going up on your posters which makes it very hard to not want to read them and um, especially again sounds like a brag but when you can see their fours and fives going up you're like well they're obviously going to be good so why wouldn't I read them but then you think but am I going to get complacent if I read these good reviews am I then going to sort of sit back and relax rather than actually sort of treat every day as a new day so I would text my mm. then boyfriend and be like send me one lovely line from the review send me one lovely line so that meant I could then go on social media I could share the review obviously put the star rating and use a quote from it and that was a really nice way of doing it because that year I was lucky I got I just got one three star review I think that yeah just one possibly two definitely one but even that one like I think if I'd read the review I would have looked for faults and gone oh three three well that's not as good as a four like three is a fine review but you don't put three stars on a poster yeah. and I think I would have fixated over it but because I got sent essentially one, like a compliment from it I was like oh you know what yeah they thought it was three stars but they thought this and that's really lovely so I'm gonna and that was a nice way of doing it because I didn't fixate on the whole review I didn't know what was being mm-hmm. said but I basically had one like pull quote essentially from every review that I could either share online if I wanted or just sort of collate for myself, which was quite nice. Yeah, it's kind of like a nice sort of filter way as well because you don't then focus on why didn't they talk about this particular joke or this particular part of the routine? Was that routine bad? So you don't get sort of overwhelmed by it. Um, Why are are your sort of like influences in comedy or sort of like uh, heroes? That's weird because like, so obviously I started comedy dead young. I started when I was 18, but I actually did like my first gig when I was 15 with like my little local youth theatre. So I've been like going to watch live comedy since I was a teenager. Like my mates would spend their money on maybe tickets to like music gigs or they would save up for like a summer holiday when we got to sort of like 16 and above. They'd save their money for like Magaluf or Malia. I would spend like everything on comedy tickets. I've got all my old tickets, like especially from that year when like things would be actual paper tickets rather than now a lot of it's email and I remember there was sort of like a period over a year where I went to see like Peter Kay, Michael McIntyre, Russell Howard, Rod Gilbert, Kevin Bridges, John Richardson like every month I was at like another comedy show I loved it and I think I think especially that's the thing you don't, you never want to copy another comedian but I think if you go and watch a lot of comedy you learn when you're starting especially you learn what makes you laugh and what you think is funny um, you know, mm. it would have it would have been like me going. Mm, I think maybe I should be a political comedian because politics is a hot topic at the minute. So I'm going to be. No offense to political comedians, I don't like watching political comedy because I'm not. I like to. Everyone's different, but when I go and watch comedy, I like to just have a laugh and be entertained. Don't mind the odd political joke, but if it was sort of like an hour of, I wouldn't get it because I don't follow politics mm. that closely. So, you know, that wouldn't have been the right path for me. And I've, I've met some new acts in the last few years who are like, yeah, I'm going to be political because that's, you know, buzzy at the minute. And I'm like, but do you like that kind of comedy? Are you doing that because that's what you want to do and you like or because you think you have to be that comedian? And I discovered the stuff I liked was like storytellers and people who talk, and especially going to Edinburgh and seeing like our shows as opposed to like, seeing your Sarah Millikens and your Russell Howard who come and do sort of a big a lot of their shows are narrative shows as well but it's very much like this is a tour show and when I started going to see Edinburgh I saw more of these you know bang on 
how our shows that sort of unfolded in front of you over the course of an hour, told a story. And I was like, God, I love, I love that kind of stuff. The one that sticks in my head is Steve Bougier, Day Release. And this is before like I knew Steve as a person. But I remember seeing his poster around and I was like, I'm going to go see that show. And I loved it. And I've seen, I think, everyone of Steve's show since. And I really love his kind of hours because he, he does what I enjoy watching and ultimately enjoy doing, which is he tells a story over an hour and I think it's Brit Chris Ramsey's also been really good for doing that I remember seeing one of Chris mm-hmm. Ramsey's shows when I was about like 17 and it was all kind of centered around round robins like that he's like his family got and it was just so beautiful like all tied up in a bow at the end and callbacks and perfect and I think that definitely helped going to see like people like Chris Ramsey people like Russell Howard um seeing that kind of comedian steve and being like oh, i love that like i love watching that so that's definitely like inf- louisa romelin as well like that's influenced how i do or how i handle like me our shows and then me club sets um i just gen- again just grafting in the clubs seeing people like um like gav webster from up here and like Gary Little up in Scotland and then coming down to London and working with the likes of Jeff Innocent and Jeff Norcott and I'm, and I'm aware I'm naming all men here don't blame me for that blame the fact that the circuit is not great at booking more than one woman on a fucking lineup so I've predominantly both was about Mandy Knight like watching Mandy Knight MC oh yes please like She's a powerhouse Susie McCabe like just doing the circuit with comics like that and just being like you're you're strong writers and that's what I admire so much about I don't want it to sound like I'm slagging off TV comedy but obviously a lot of comics who regularly do TV will have things written for them and that's fine it's the turnover time it's about looking their best all that sort of thing but I think that's what I love about the circuit is watching these just amazing crafters of jokes and writers just smash it out across 20 minutes bang 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 you know they've written it all that's all their work that's their craft and I think there's something special about, like, I've literally grown up in the comedy clubs and just been so, like, not, like, influenced in terms of, like, oh, well, I need to copy what they do, but in terms of how I want to be a comedian and, like, how much pride I put in, this is a good joke, I know how to write a joke, like, so many amazing circuit comics have definitely just had me sitting at the side of the stage like a wide-eyed little teenager being like, oh, they are good, they are good. <laughs> As someone who is a, a comedy fan as well, is there a, a, a slight cursed element where you'll watch a show and you'll kind of try to analyse, oh, how have they got to that punt part of the punchline? You know, have they, how have they structured... Probably since the year I debuted, maybe since about 2017, I cannot watch comedy like an audience member anymore. I can't. I watch mm. it. Not like a critic, not like a reviewer. I watch it like a comedian. I dissect it. I think I know where... I, I know that you're leading us up that path and then you're going to pull the rug and surprise twist. Like, oh, I can see a callback. Yeah, I remember once going to see a friend show at Soho Theatre and I was enjoying it, but there was one bit and I thought, oh, I know exactly like like a topper that she's going to do. Like, I know exactly what she's going to do. Sounds like the bit's going to be finished and then she's going to bang, topper, callback. Oh, amazing. And she didn't do it. And I sat there and I was <clears throat> furious. I thought you have missed such an open goal of a joke there. Like, ah, and like, I'm not saying that it made it a bad show, but you sometimes sit as a comedian and you think, why have you not gone there? Why have you not, oh my God, you've missed. And some of us, like, if it's a mate, you'll go and say, have you thought about doing that? Have you thought about doing this? But then you never know if you sound like an arsehole being like, hey, I came to watch a show as a friend. Here's some constructive feedback. But then other times, if it's someone you maybe don't know that well, you're like, 
or, or someone maybe who's much higher up than you, you think, well, I don't want to go give them like unsolicited advice, but I definitely find it hard to watch comedy as a fan now rather than mm. looking for where the twists are going to be or well, what would I say? What would I say next? Like, um, how would I craft this bit into a joke? Like, oh, it's, it's a blessing and a curse all at once because I love mm. comedy so much, but I cannot watch it like like a comedian, like a audience member anymore. I watch it like a like with a sort of director's head on because I'd love to get into doing more stuff like that and sort of helping shape other people's, especially Edinburgh shows. Um, but yeah, it does make it, it probably makes it insufferable to watch like a Netflix special with because I'm like, hmm, well, saw that one coming or I'll, I'll spit out the punchline before they've got to the punchline and everyone's like, for fuck's sake, Lauren, can we just enjoy this comedy? And I'm like, no, if I can't enjoy it, no one can enjoy it. <laughs> But the the opposite, the flip, the turning, the turning of the tables of that would be then if it, if you see a setup to a joke being done and you go, that's going to come back, that's going to come back, and then it doesn't, it's a different callback that you didn't expect. That makes the show even it it, it, it escalates it to another level. Definitely, of quality. definitely. Like I remember offering to sort of direct people's Edinburgh shows a couple of years ago, and no one took us up on it. And I think maybe as well it's because people might look and think, oh well, at the time I'd only done two shows, and I was like, yeah, but. God, like, you don't have to have even done a comedy show to sort of direct comedy. I know plenty of people who direct shows who haven't performed, and I'm like, the people who are so good at it are the people who've just got that absolute passion for comedy and, like, sort of see mm. it for the bare bones of what it is. Like like an X-ray, like, I feel like that's... When I watch it now, I watch it like I'm looking at an X-ray, and I'm like, I can see your workings there. I can see what's going on inside. Yeah. Um, so I've, I don't do many features on this podcast, but I've got one. I've got one which I've uh, left over. Um, it's a feature which is, is that the previous guest asks a question to the current one. Um, and, as Stuart, and as Stuart Goldman said, oh, you mean like Radio Falls Chain Reaction? I'm like, damn it, yes, exactly that. Um, so, But Chain Reaction isn't on anymore, so I could quit Chain Reaction. So the previous guest was, was actually recorded... Uh, previous comedy guest was recorded back in February of last year, so they didn't—they had no idea who it was going to be. Uh, this is Alexandra Haddo, who you might have met at uh, Dulwich. She does the Dulwich gig, yeah. Uh, so this is a question from Alex to you. Hello, mysterious next comedy guest on the podcast. I want to ask you, how do you think your social media presence affects your comedy? Oh, I was just on about this, so I'm actually... Um... Don't mean to. I keep saying, don't mean to brag. So I'm writing a piece for the theatre at the minute because um, I'm very highbrow. <laughs> the joys of moving back to Newcastle, where there's quite a small art scene, as everybody knows, everybody and my friend has a theatre here. Is commissioned some sort of like monologues, and I'm writing mine sort of set in. They've all got to be set in an empty theatre, and I'm doing mine mm. about like a comedian in an empty sort of space so I've been thinking a lot about like how, how do I explain what it's like to be a comedian to a theatre crowd who might not necessarily know the so I've been thinking one of the bits I was writing about was social media social media for me a few years ago was fun like oh I would come back from uni and I'd maybe like have a little look at what was going on on Twitter I'd post some funny Facebook statuses I'd share some stuff and then a few of my friends especially from uni time have said they were aware as, I don't want to say as followers, but as people who had me on social media as Lauren, their friend, they said they saw, not my Facebook, my Facebook is still my personal Facebook, that's why I changed my name on it and everything, but my Twitter especially, and probably my Instagram as well, they said they were aware of a shift when it went from, this is Lauren, our mate, ha ha ha, this is just regular Lauren, to this is Lauren, I don't want to say as a brand, but this is like professional Lauren, and I think it's kind of like, 
it's stressful in a way because I miss just being able to use social media for the fun of it. Whereas now, like, that's Facebook I still use. I say for fun. Facebook's not fun. Um, Facebook's full of your aunties sharing minions memes. But, um, like, Twitter, I used to really, like, I used to just follow all comedians and I used to really just use it for fun. But now I do feel like there's a pressure where, like, it is an extension of you on stage. Um, Like, people who are sort of following you on Twitter are usually people who, as a comedian, or people who've seen you think you're funny, so they're then kind of sitting in front of their screens being like, make me laugh, come on. And you kind of mm. feel that pressure. Um, but what I've found quite nice about social media is I do think it's not necessarily influenced me comedy so much, but I think because I sort of have a very strong sense of who I am on stage and a strong comedy voice, I've then allowed that to transfer over to me social media. So I do use it as a slight extend like what what people enjoy about my comedy or I think they do is that it's relatable and I talk about my life and at the time like my partner living in London like jokes about maybe struggling with mental health like now I'm working in a shop and that's all the kind of things I would talk about on stage and it's very easy to just sort of take little snapshots of that and put little sort of snappy not necessarily even jokes because I think there's some people on Twitter who are incredible at just bashing out jokes like um oh Jake Lambert and then he called him Jack Campbell there, but that's a totally different comedian. Um, <laughs> Jake Lambert is great um, at like sort of tweeting like one-liners and jokes, and there's a few comics like that, but I can't do that. And I used to feel like, oh, well, I'm so bad at being a comedian on social media, but that's not what I do on stage. What I don't do like one-liners and stuff like that. I tell sort of funny little stories and anecdotes, and it <clears> is quite, obviously, I can't bring it to life as much as I can on stage, but it's you can try and boil that down and... I think it's nice for people who really like your comedy and like that kind of stuff you do on stage to then follow you online and they feel like they're getting to see more of that and more of you and like, oh, well, she mentioned that she worked in a supermarket when we saw her on stage and look now she's doing, like tweeting funny little sort of snippets about working in the shop and then what I tend to do is if something really goes well, like if a tweet really takes off, I think, right, well, how can I turn that into a bit? How can I take that... What characters do you get on Twitter now? 280 characters. How can I take this short little sort of snippet of a joke and grow it into a bigger story? Because um, it is. Mm. I, I don't like people who use social media as a constant testing ground for material. You can tell when people are doing that. And I think, don't just throw everything out there. But like, if you've got like a little yeah. nugget of an idea, yeah, maybe pop it as a tweet, pop it as like a Facebook status or whatever, see the reaction. And if it starts to go well, you think, right, yeah, there is something in that. But... I personally don't like throwing everything out there. I only th- if I have an idea that I think is like I think that could work as a bit. I'm going to see if I can make it work as a tweet. If it goes well, then I'll extend it, sort of thing. Um, so like I did a mm. daft tweet about um, how people said I should go on first dates when I became single, and I was like, I don't think the great British public want to see um, me crying in the toilets while a bemused man enjoys two dinners. And that went down really well. And I was like, well, you know what? There you go, Lauren. There's your punchline. That's going to be the, mm. that like that obviously works as a joke. It's worked as a little standalone tweet. It's funny, it's snappy. Um, so I haven't like developed it in, that into a bigger bit yet, but I've been using that, especially on these online gigs where conversational stuff tends to work more. I've sort of been talking mm. about being single and being dumped and making little pithy comments about that. And then I've kind of been sneaking that in. It's like a nice little joke to wrap that bit up and it seems to be working. And then maybe in time yeah. I might think, oh, well, could I do more material about what would it be like if I went on first date? So think, oh, what is it like to date as an awkward person? And 
that's how sort of your brain starts to work if you think right well that tweet worked that was a funny little joke or a funny little anecdote can I grow it can I make it bigger so I don't know if that really answered the question but I think yeah my comedy influences my social media more than my social media Mm. maybe it is cyclical cyclical circular and then you're also involved as well in the calm podcast with the which is the the podcast name is conversations against living uh, miserably with uh dave the net tv network how did you get involved with that um so there's a guy who does the social media for dave he's called uh aaron and he's on twitter as like technically ron and he's got a really like quite a big twitter following he's very funny on twitter very very funny he's not a comedian um Sorry, that sounds like I'm slagging them off, like, mm, he's not a comedian. But no, like, he by profession is not a comedian, but he's very, very funny on Twitter. He's great. I really like his mm. stuff. And he came to see Lady Mock. And I remember being like, oh, my God, technically Ron is coming to see my show. Because I would always see stuff getting shared on my timeline and, like, screenshotted on Facebook. So he came to see it and he was lovely. And then, did he come to see, was Peachy after? I cannot remember. I can't remember if the podcast started. No, it was 20... 20- 19 the podcast started I think so yeah I must have then done Peachy as well and he come to see Peachy and he was like I'd really like to have a chat with you I've got this idea for something and I want you to be involved um but it's totally okay if you don't want to be and I was like no cool tell me so he I can't remember if he's an ambassador for Calm or just is very involved with Calm but he's definitely got a connection to Calm and also does the social media for Dave and he'd had this idea about like sort of bringing the two together and he was like I'd like to do a podcast with Dave, like, in aid of calm, talking about mental health, getting people on, he went, but I don't want it to be two straight white dudes interviewing people. He went, because there's a lot of podcasts like that. He went, I think yours is an important voice. You're, like, a young, sort of working-class regional woman. He was like, obviously, you're funny. You care about mental health. He went, I think you would be a really good person to have because it's, obviously, my voice is very different to his, but we've also got the shared interest and passion for it so I think it was good because we both brought and as well he was bringing the very like um because he's written a book as well about like dealing with anxiety and stuff so Aaron was kind of bringing being naturally funny but also having a bit more of a not logical you know like a like an academic understanding like he brought that sort of perspective um whereas I brought the sort of like comedy funny and I kind of I think my sort of role within that was yes to care but also to make it light and keep it funny um so we started doing that and I loved it really I'd never really thought about doing podcasts before I was like well who would want to bloody listen to my voice like waffling on and I remember the first one we did was with Stuart Goldsmith and I was so awkward I didn't really know what I was doing I didn't know how to be a presenter but the more we did the more I just like totally grew in confidence and like absolutely fell in love with what we were doing and because I think at first I was like oh, I don't really know why I'm here like what what am I doing here oh god this is all a big mistake I want to be involved I don't want to fuck it up but oh I don't know what to do and then I realized my sort of role within that was to like make it light make it relatable just genuinely like if Aaron would say something academic I'd be like oh my god I didn't know that that makes sense like just really I sort of found my sort of comfortable role within the podcast and then I was like oh I get it now I just have to be me I don't have to be like professional on stage bang, bang, bang. I just have to be like authentic Lauren who cares about mental health who likes to make people laugh and like oh wow I didn't know that oh oh my god you feel like this too and I think I just kind of made it helped make it I don't, I don't want to say like it was all me mm. Aaron is also bloody brilliant at it but we just worked so well mm. together and often like Larry Dean we had Larry Dean on there love Larry and I think I just helped to send that episode into chaos, whereas Aaron was like constantly trying to like rein it back in and bring it back to mental health and back to obviously to appease 
come and Dave and fill the brief of what we were doing. So we've just got that brilliant like yin and yang of we like to have fun and I like to, if I've got a guest on who I get on dead well with, I know how far I can push it. Mm. But then Aaron's like, let's get back on topic of mental health. And we worked really well together. We've done two series of that. I don't know if we're doing any more, but I absolutely love doing it. And I'm pleased I did because I think now I would feel confident to be like, oh, I think I could do my own podcast. Like, I think I could, mm. not necessarily about mental health, but I've become a lot more comfortable with my own voice and chatting and sort of interacting with people as me rather than as comedy Lauren on stage. Um, that, yeah, it's, it's honestly, when people say to me, like, what's the favourite thing you've done in your comedy career? It's probably that podcast. It really is. Mm. Like, it helped me sort of unpick some things in my own brain. And when someone tells you, oh, I think it was Darren Harriet said how he struggled to make eye contact with people on stage. And I was like, I struggled to make eye Oh, my God, I didn't know anyone else. Because you kind of feel bad as a comic when you can't make eye contact. And... I just, oh, it did wonders for me. And then also just the feedback we got off people who it had helped. And I was like, it's so nice to be able to mix those two interests of like, I care so much about mental health and I love comedy. And I kind of got to fuse them together in this project that all the ad money went to Calm as well. So when you like mm. listen to it on whatever you listen to your podcasts on and the adverts pop up, all that ad money went to Calm. So we were like raising money for Calm. I've then got like really involved with Calm and I was going to run the Great North Run for them last year, which got cancelled because of COVID. So I was like, well, I'll roll my place over and I really want to like, I've become so passionate about Calm and the work they do. I think I've raised like two grand now for this half marathon I'm meant to be running, which scares me because I kind of forgot I had to run the half marathon as well as raise the money. But it's, it's definitely my favourite thing I've done. I think that's the beautiful thing about being a comedian is when you get to use your voice and your sort of, I don't want to say talent for making people laugh, but your skill for bringing the light to things and get to fuse mm. it with something that is important. I think it's really, like, I know some comics slag off. People whose Edinburgh shows have got, like, a message or who use their Edinburgh shows to talk about a serious thing as well as being funny. And I'm like, you know what? I, I disagree. I think that's the most beautiful, brilliant thing about comedy that you can make people absolutely piss their pants laughing while also making a serious point or bringing like, light to a serious situation. And I, I think that's mm. such a skill. I love it. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great little podcast for bringing awkward conversations, not awkward conversations, but difficult conversations to the forefront, but not in a way that is hard to listen it's it's through it's done through this prism of comedy exactly like you don't feel you don't ever feel like you're listening in on like a therapy session you're like this is a group of people who are just putting their cards on the table and are willing to not necessarily we're not mocking mental health at all but to sort of <clears throat> laugh about how shit things can be and how hard things can be and sort of take those dark things and sprinkle a bit of light on them and i'd like to think that when people listen they're like oh yeah, like, I feel like that too, and yeah, it's hard, but, oh, we can laugh about it sometimes, and we can, like, re or we can laugh about, I don't know, you know what I mean, like, I, I don't want it to sound like we're mocking mental health every week, but just being able to laugh at things that you struggle with and you find hard, I think then makes those things maybe a bit less scary and a bit more bearable. And, oh, yeah, and also, comedy itself is making light of dark subjects as well at the same time. Like, I remember when my nana died, like, years ago, and, like, she'd come to uh, get me from work to obviously say that she died, and her brother was there, like, my uncle, and they're in the car, and me and my sister are in the car, and it was all, like, really, I think it was the first, like, sort of death I'd had in the family, and I was, like, 18 or 19 years old, but this was the first person I'd known 
to die in the family and obviously I can say my mum's upset, my uncle's upset, you don't know what to do, you don't know what to say and then my mum just went, guess we're orphans now and like just that beautiful, like it just punctuated the tension, my sister was due to get married at the time, she was getting married in like six weeks time and my uncle was like, so I'm guessing there's a meal going spare at the wedding and oh how we laughed and there will be some families who would be offended by that and be like, oh no, that, that's a serious situation, grief, how dare. But my family has always been the kind of family who moments of grief, moments of like breakups and job loss, moments of tragedy, you find the light in it. Just sometimes you have to laugh to get through things. And I think especially mm. with like mental health, it is so big and all consuming. And it's such a struggle that if you can just find anything to laugh about with it, it makes your day feel a little bit less heavy. Uh, and finally... What have you learnt? I have learned that I am very independent. Um, that's what I've learned, not just through comedy, but through life. I've learned that I'm ambitious to a fault. Um, and I never thought that was a thing. I thought being ambitious was a good thing. But I have definitely learned that sometimes I let ambition kind of cloud everything. So <laughs> like, um, when I was living in London... I was like, oh no, but I've moved here to do comedy because I want to succeed. I was miserable. I was skint. I hated the flats I was living in. I didn't really have many friends. I was lonely. But I was like, well, no, I have to stay here because I want to succeed. I want to do comedy. And it's only with this pandemic where I've sort of like come back up north that I've been like, why didn't I... Well, obviously I had a boyfriend, which is part of the reason I didn't leave. But I'm like, why did I not consider my own happiness and my own well-being I was so preoccupied and fixated on I need to succeed I need to succeed and to succeed I need to be here I need to be in London and it was coming at the detriment of everything else now I'm like no no you can be ambitious but you also have to take into consideration your own happiness your own feelings like what you actually want yes I want to succeed but I also want to live somewhere where I can afford and own my own place and have a dog and I was never going to have that in London whereas I've moved back up north and I'm like yeah, maybe it will slightly fuck up your career a little bit. Maybe things won't be as smooth or whatever, but you're so much happier and you can still have that ambition just while also taking into consideration your own path. It's a bit like what I said before when I criticise people for... Well, not criticise people, but when people want to follow other people's path. Maybe I've done that as well when I was like, oh, but I have to move to London. No, baby, you didn't. You didn't because not much really happened for you in London. And if it doesn't happen for you when you're not there... It's not your fault. It's just a sign of the industry being a bit fickle. <laughs> Lauren President, thank you very much. Thank you very much.